This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, I think I already mentioned that, and let me, let me pray and we will jump in. Lord, we are grateful for all that you've taught us in this series, and we pray that you would continue to speak to us. We pray that you would not only call us to holiness, but we pray you would forgive us for our unholiness, and you would empower us to repent and walk in holiness. That's what we ask for, that you would change us for your glory. Lord, every one of us in this room, whether we are young or old, single or married, um, divorced or widowed or widower, uh, whatever our situation is, we pray that you would just help us to uh, grow and to live out our sexuality for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've been in a series on, um, on uh, sexuality is what we've been speaking about. And so let me just review what we've covered so far. We started with what is the purpose of sex, and we looked at how God created sex. So we did a couple of messages on what is the purpose of sex, and I'll be re- re- uh, reviewing that tonight a little bit. Then we did a message on what went wrong. So God created a perfect man and woman, Adam and Eve. Then they fell into sin, and then uh, relational problems happened for them. And, uh, and we all are born with the sinful uh, hearts, and so our tendency is to uh, create idols for ourselves. And so we looked at Romans 1, how sex is an idol, that oftentimes we will bow down to the idol of sex and we will do things that are displeasing to the Lord to fulfill that urge uh, to, uh, to worship at the, uh, at the idol of sex. So maybe we're desiring pleasure, maybe we're craving romance, maybe we want to feel loved, maybe we're just trying to fulfill our lusts, but whatever it is, we will, we will have sex and pursue uh, sexual pleasure outside of God's design because we have a tendency to worship idols and not God at points. So we talked about that. Then we did two weeks on sex and marriage uh, and tried to help married couples um, and help us grow in our sexual relationships. So we did the book of Song of Solomon in two weeks. Those, they're long sermons, but we, we generally covered it. We didn't look at every verse, but we covered the big ideas of the book. And those are both up on the web. If you'd like to go hear those messages, uh, hopefully they'd be helpful. And I had a real agenda in going through that. The agenda was to teach the scripture. But a secondary agenda was to really set the record straight in some ways and kind of cut through the confusion in our culture about how God views sex. And God is uh, very uh, positive and pro-sex and marriage. He created it. And uh, so we looked at that. And then tonight we're going to talk about sex and singles. And so I want to say the same thing uh, to the marriage as I said to the singles. Uh, is that you say, oh, well, I'm not single, I'm married, so I'll just go ahead and check out and you know, log into Facebook on my phone and see what's going on because this doesn't affect me. Oh, it affects you. Uh, because you may have kids, so it affects you, or kids who are single. Um, but it also affects you because we're a family. Uh, we are not uh, self-interest groups. We are not parties within the church uh, with various uh, you know, agendas. We're a family, and a lot of us are single. Middle school, high school, college, um, and single adults. Uh, so a lot of us are single. And so the, how our singles in our church um, walk out sexual purity is of great concern to every one of us. Uh, we want to see them experience God and his grace in this area. So it, it affects uh, certainly all of us. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, let me say one last thing. A number of you have asked me questions. Some have walked right up to me, looked me in the eye and asked questions. Uh, some of you have emailed me, uh, which might be a little easier on this topic. And I'm guessing that there are some who have questions that you feel uncomfortable uh, coming and asking. So we thought through and have made a way that you can anonymously ask a question about this series uh, in, on anything that we're talking about in terms of sexuality. Uh, and that is we have a, a private text number that you can text a question into. Um, you can do it tonight, you can do it during the week, you can do it anytime. This is the number. And I don't know how the technology works, but it's a Google Voice number or something like that. So I want you to know that it will be forwarded, that your question will be forwarded uh, to one of, uh, one of us. But uh, uh, your question will have your phone number, but it will, there's no contacts associated with it. So it will not have your name. So it is anonymous, and, and it comes to me. 
I'm not going to go looking for your phone number and try to find out who it is. You have to trust me on that, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, you're sending something anonymous that you want answered uh, that's come up in the series that you felt uncomfortable asking. This is the best way we know. You can't send an anonymous email that we know of uh, that we can get back with you, but you can text. So if you write down that number, maybe we'll show it at the end as well. You can send a text message. It'll come to me. I'll see your number, but not your name because there's no contacts. And then uh, I'll text you back an answer, text you back a resource. I'll answer it on the city if I think it would apply to a lot of people. Or I have answered some questions that I've been asked in sermons. So somebody asked me something like, oh, I'll talk about that in the next sermon. So I've done that. So maybe, uh, maybe I'll answer it in a sermon and, um, you know, as well. So anyway, we want to help you however we can on that. So two more messages after this one, and then I'm going to jump in. Uh, next week I'm going to speak on pornography, and then the next week is Labor Day, so we're going to have a message on work. Uh, not sex, but work, for because it's Labor Day weekend. And then the last message of the series will be on homosexuality, and I'll do that uh, the week after Labor Day, and then we're moving into First Peter after that. So that's, that's where we are. Okay, uh, sex and singles. Let me define single and let me define married, because they're, they're, just, uh, they're not given. Single, when I say that, I don't mean unattached, not dating. I, I mean unmarried. So if you are dating... Uh, I'm, I'm calling you a single. If you're engaged, I'm saying that's a single. If you're not married, you are single. And marriage, biblically defined, um, and this wouldn't be the cultural definition, but the biblical definition is a, uh, a co- lifelong covenant relationship uh, between one man and one woman. So that's what I mean when I say marriage. Uh, so single, I mean you're not married. Married, I mean... Uh, a committed relationship, a marriage between one man and one woman. So here's the question I want to ask tonight. Does the Bible endorse, permit, or in any way speak positively about sex between unmarried people? Does it permit, does it endorse, does it in any way speak positively about sex between unmarried people? Well, the answer to that is no, it does not. And if you're new, that probably doesn't surprise you that a a pastor at an evangelical church who's teaching the Bible would would have that view, okay? That's probably not a shocker that uh, that is the view. But I want to talk about why that is tonight, because I think it's one thing to say God does not permit sex among unmarried people. Uh, married to each other. God does, it's one thing to say it's sinful. I believe it is because it's disobedient to God's design. God created sex and designed it to be used in a certain context and expressed in marriage. And again, we talked in great detail about that. God is not anti-pleasure or, any, or anti-passion. I think with the last two weeks, some people say, wow, God endorses a lot more passion than I knew about or I'm currently experiencing as a married person, okay? So we tried to cast a, a great vision for that biblically. So he's not anti-pleasure, he's pro-pleasure. And he has confined sex to a committed relationship between a man and a woman who are married. So, why is that? I think that's an important question to ask. Why? Abstinence teaching often emphasizes two things. Here's how it usually goes. And these aren't without merit. But here's how it usually goes. Is that um, there, there's sort of two kinds of reasons. There are n- the negative consequence reasons. So, to Christians, speaking to Christians, don't have sex, or this could be unchristian, I mean unbelievers as well, uh, don't have sex because uh, negative things can happen. Like you could get pregnant or you could um, get the woman you're having sex with pregnant. So an unplanned pregnancy could happen. That would be a negative consequence. Or you could get a sexually transmitted disease, an STD. That would be one reason not to because that's a negative consequence. And if you're young, by the way, uh, that's not just something that happens to adults. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, estimates that 26% of all women 14 to 19, 26% of all women 14 to 19 in the U.S. are infected with at least one sexually transmitted disease. So that's a pretty, uh, um, that's 26% of girls who have had sex, obviously. Uh, But but that's a high percentage of infection. So you could get a sexually transmitted disease. Or you could feel very guilty and it would be tremendous guilt and, and potentially shame that you would feel associated with it. Okay, that would be a negative consequence. Or you could be immers- uh, emotionally hurt. If you, when you break up with this person, if you've had sex with them, it's going to be all the more painful. So uh, those are kind of the 
type of negative consequences. Um, the reality, though, is with pregnancy and STDs, there are safe ways to lower the risk significantly to the point where a careful person's not going to hold off having sex just for that in many cases. A careful person's going to say, okay, we're going we're to take care of this and shave the odds. I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to take a chance on that. So it's, it's usually not a deterrent by just giving those negative consequences. And avoiding emotional hurt or guilt, or uh, that's pretty flimsy when the urge is strong. The hormones will overpower that kind of, oh, I'm going to feel bad afterwards because I'm going to feel real good right now, and the good right now is going to trump the bad afterwards many times in many life choices, not just sexuality. But more importantly, these negative personal consequences, they're not the main idea of why the Bible says sex is, between, is to be between married people. They're not unreasonable. They're not, worth cons- no, they're not unworthy of consideration. I think they're worthy of consideration, but they're not the main reason the Bible gives. Nor is a more positive approach that if you wait, it will be better. Now, I mentioned that last week when we studied Song of Solomon, and I actually said, looking at Song of Solomon, I think it is an apologetic, not the apologetic, but an apologetic for waiting until marriage because of the freedom that is experienced between two people whose lives are joined in commitment long term, the sort of abandon that they gave themselves to there and the sort of the way it builds their relationship in an environment of trust. So uh, I sort of used that one last week, that, that it's, it's better to wait because it's better. Sex is better among married couples. Um, and, and actually statistics, that's even proven out statistically. But that's not biblically, that's not a biblical argument either. And besides, in the moment of temptation... I can wait, and it'll be a lot better five to ten years from now. That's not usually a good, that doesn't sway people in the, in the heat of passion oftentimes. Um, and besides, if sexual fulfillment's the primary driver, like I'll have better sex then than I do now, it's sort of like my personal sexual fulfillment. If that's the driver on when I decide to have sex, then I might as well take my chances and have it now as a single person rather than wait because it might be better then. Okay? So... Personal sexual fulfillment's not the primary driver. Now, again, I don't think that's an unreasonable argument. I made it. I didn't, wasn't the primary point I made last week, but I made the point. I, I think there's something there. I think there's something um, about the positive approach of delayed gratification that is, a, that, it, that is good. But it's not the primary biblical approach. The primary biblical approach is not bad things can happen or something really good can happen. That's not the primary Reason. So what is a sound reason to wait? Well, first of all, people aren't waiting. Evangelical Christians aren't waiting. Uh, let me just say that before we go on. I mean, there are, but, but the majority uh, probably aren't. There was a study done, this, I just read this, this is recent, among young American evangelicals, and they asked them their view of sex outside of marriage. And there was one category of people who said, it's always wrong. So on the survey, there was a category of people that said sex outside of marriage. These are adult, young, American evangelicals. So of the group who said it's always wrong, they then asked about their experience, and 7 out of 10 of them had had sex with at least one person in the last 12 months. So 70%, not of those who said it may be okay, 70% who said under all circumstances it's wrong were actually uh, having sex or had in the last year. So I think the negative consequences and the positive reward for waiting, I I don't think they're persuading a generation of people uh, who are largely, not entirely, there's plenty of folks, I know plenty of folks who aren't, but I I think largely that that is the norm. So I think we want to look a little bit more carefully and have a little bit more of a biblical idea than you might get an STD as a reason for not having sex before marriage. And the reason uh, that the Bible gives has to go to what is the purpose of sex. That's where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 6. So in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a church problem. You want to talk about some drama in a church? There's a church problem because members of the church are having sex with prostitutes down at the, at the temple the idol temples. 
So this isn't like two people, oh, somebody gossiped about me and I got mad and there's a little bit of division because some people are mad. No, we've got a problem in the church because people are out sleeping with prostitutes and it's known and it's just part of what they do down at the temple uh, because the temple had male and female prostitutes as part of their worship. So Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, there you go. Um, I I wasn't going to skip over that because somebody would say, did you know what you said? Yeah, I know what I said. I slipped and said it. So you don't have to tell me at the ice cream social later this evening (laughs) that I didn't say six, I said sex. I know what I said. Thank you very much. That's what I learned. Public speaking tip. If you have a real guffaw that's embarrassing, just acknowledge it. It's better than not and covering because your friends will give you a hard time later. (laughs) So here we go. Verse 12 of uh, chapter 6. How about I'll say it like that? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will, raise the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Okay, here's the first thing. The first point is we must, when we talk about sex uh, for the unmarried, we want to ask the right question. Paul is... We must ask the right question. Is it right or wrong? We, we need to start with asking the right question. Paul is talking to the Corinthians who, throughout this letter, have these various slogans that they live by. And this is one of the slogans um, that, that he's repeating to them and then evaluating. So in the ESV, I'm assuming this is true in the NIV as well, but in the ESV, if you look at verse 12, it's in quotes. I'm going to do my air quotes here. It's in quotes, all things are lawful for me. Okay, that's what the Corinthians say. And, and then Paul says, but all things are not helpful. Then they say, all things are lawful for me. And then Paul says, but I will not be dominated by anything. So they are saying, all things are lawful. That is, we can do, in essence, whatever we want because we're under grace. And actually, Paul says something that kind of sounds like this in Romans. He doesn't say that exactly. But he says something that kind of sounds familiar But the intent is very different. They use the intent to say, so it doesn't matter what we do sexually. We're not under law. We're under grace. We're free. And Paul says, yes, you're free, but you use your freedom to obey God, not to sin. So Paul might say we're free, but when Paul says we're free in other places in the Scripture, he says we're free not to have sex with prostitutes, but we're free to honor the Lord. We're free and empowered to honor Him. That's what he says, free to obey God. So he answers them. They say, uh, all things are lawful for me. And he answers and says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. And he introduces a different question. The word helpful means beneficial, and it has others in view. All things are lawful. I am free to do whatever because I'm not under the law. Okay, but not everything is beneficial or loving for others. Everything's not helpful for others. Everything's not beneficial. The question is not, can I do this, but will this benefit others? And by the way, this is the biblical ethic of how we decide what we can and cannot do, perhaps when something's not explicitly stated in the Scripture. But... If it's explicitly stated, then as Christians, we're, uh, we obey the Scripture. We're called to obey the Scripture. But there's certain things that maybe aren't exactly as clearly spelled out for us. And so this is the question. The question's not, what's wrong with it? See, that'd be that too. I'm free to do whatever I want. What's wrong with it? The question is, Paul's saying, what's right with it? That's the question. Because Paul wants to say, I'm motivated by love for others. So the question is not, what are my rights and what can I do? 
The question is, what can I do that will benefit and love someone else? Now, that doesn't mean that we're all captive to everyone else's opinion. And that doesn't mean that the weakest conscience in the room rules us all and we all have to bow to someone's preferences that are unbiblical. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we love other people and the motive for our ethics, including our sexual ethics, is what benefits other people. So I'm not going to really get into this. I wish I would have. Maybe I will. I'm not going to really get into the question of pre-marriage, like how far is too far. But the question uh, of a dating couple or an engaged couple, but the question is the wrong question. The question is, how can I serve the other person so that they are given to purity and holiness before the Lord? That's the question. Not what can I get by with and still be okay. And they're saying, hey, we're free to do whatever. So we have to reframe the question. Paul says, yeah, but everything's not beneficial. I want to ask what's right with it. See, Christian freedom is limited. And it's limited not by legalism or not by the opinions of others. It's limited by love. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. Freedom is limited by love. Paul says, there's things I could do, but I'm not going to do them. Because I love people and it's not worth it if it would hinder them and lead them to sin. Even if I could do that, I wouldn't do it. Because I want to serve and love others. The Corinthians are all about, I'm going to express myself and do what I want. And that means going down and uh, you know, enjoying myself with the temple prostitute. And he also says that our Christian freedom is limited by the lordship of Christ. So he says, they say all things are lawful. He says, yeah, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. That is, I'm not going to give myself to something that will master me, that will enslave me that'll take me captive. And sexual sin is that way. Uh, sexual sin is, um, has the power, lust has the power uh, to, to be enslaving. Or the, the modern word that we would use for that, that's often used, is addicted. And, and I'm fine with that word if we mean by addicted, captured and enslaved to sin. If that's what it means, yes. Yes, addicted, enslaved. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to master me and is going to rule over me because Jesus rules over me. So Christian freedom is limited by the rulership of Jesus and by love. That's what Paul says. That's how we make our ethical decisions. What's right with it? He said, I'm not going to give myself, I'm not going to give myself to lust if it's going to master me. And that is going to uh, master them. And that's a, that's a real temptation with all kinds of sexual sin. Pornography in particular, we'll talk about next week, uh, we'll talk about the enslaving nature of pornography. And I may even get into the, some of the physiological, addictive uh, nature of pornography that can happen uh, in our lives. So anyway, we must ask the right question. Number two, we must understand the nature of sex. So he starts with what's right with a practice, and then he secondly looks at the nature of sex. They saw sex as a physical act, a biological function, a natural urge, that can be fulfilled um, so that the, the tension or the urge is released and the person is, uh, is back to normal, so to speak, we might say. So th- that's what he's saying. They're saying it's like, a, it's like a natural urge. It's just a biological function. And so they use this statement. Now, this is in quotes in the ESV, and I think it is their statement. I don't think it's Paul's. So that's a little bit of an interpretation by the translators of the ESV, but I think it's right. It says, quote, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. I can't imagine that's Paul saying that. That's them saying that. And he's quoting it back to them. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. So, so it's temporary. Food is temporary. The body's temporary. They're saying, hey, look, it's just like eating. Having sex is just like eating a meal. That's all. It's a bodily function. That's their view of the nature of sex. Um, and so he's saying, no, wait a minute. Uh, you are an integrated person. The body is made for the Lord and the Lord made for the body. And God will, uh, the Lord will raise up, uh, the, the one who raised up the Lord will raise us up by his power. So he's saying, hey, it, our bodies are significant. And we are not, we're not living dualistically that we believe the interior person, the spirit is good and the body is bad. We believe that we're integrated people, body and spirit. As a matter of fact, our body is going to be resurrected and we're going to have eternal spiritual bodies. So bodies are significant and it's tied to who we really are. And sex isn't just a physical bodily function, so to speak. 
uh, there's more to it than that because we are integrated people. We are whole people. We have a soul and our whole person, our body is meant for the Lord, he says. It's not meant for sexual, uh, for sexual immorality. So it does matter what we do with our bodies. What's more, he says, we are members of Christ. That's what he goes on to say next. Now this, this gets interesting and this is kind of the argument that we probably rarely hear about why to wait as Christians. But he says, or why not, if you're married, why not to have sex with someone you're not married to? The same argument would be here. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he's saying, look, you are one with the Lord. Your members are the Lord's members. And so should you join yourself to a prostitute and join the Lord to her? Now he's using the example of a prostitute here um, because that's the, peop- that's, those, that's the people they were having sex with. But this would work. It's, it's not about prostitution. It's about sex with someone you're not married to. That's the idea that he's ultimately talking about here. And he's not just sort of kicking someone when they're down as if he, as if he has disdain and disgust for prostitutes, like there's some class of person <coughs> that he's just going to pile on and, you know, be, um, you know, be mean and uh, sort of condescending and judgmental of them. Jesus welcomed prostitutes. And so the religious people thought Jesus was crazy because he was, he never did anything inappropriate in the least, but he showed the love of the Father to prostitutes. So this isn't about prostitutes are bad, so don't get mixed up with bad people. Uh, this just happens to be who they're having sex with. But he's saying here that you're, you're joining the Lord to uh, a prostitute. That's what he's actually saying. And he says in verse 16, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The, he uses the exact same words. You're joined to the Lord. You have sex with someone you're not married to, in the, the prostitute here. You're joined to her, and so the two are being joined. And in between, he said, do you not know that when you have sex, you become one flesh? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. In Genesis 2.24, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. When the Old Testament is translated into Greek, it's Hebrew, but when it's translated in, into Greek, the word hold fast to his wife is the exact same word join here. So he's using join three times. You're joined to Jesus, you're joined to a prostitute, because when a husband and wife come together, they're joined. It's all the same word. And so what he's trying to say is there is something happening here. This is not like, uh, like they think. This is not just like eating a ham sandwich. It's just a bodily function. It's the body is for food, food's for the body. No. You're joined to the Lord. You're joined to a person you marry in, in a one flesh relationship. Now, if you're having sex with someone you're not married to, you've become one flesh with them. You've joined yourself to them and, and you've joined the Lord. So here to them. So here's the argument. The bodies of Christians are members of Christ. Sexual intercourse joins two humans. Sex with a prostitute unites the members of Christ with that prostitute. So he's saying there is a mystery in sexuality. And when you have a casual sexual relationship, this would be the most casual relationship. Sex with a, like a, like a hookup with a stranger, sex with a prostitute, that's the most casual. He's saying you're taking the most holy relationship imaginable. You're joined to the Lord as a Christian. You're joined to the Lord. That's the most holy union imaginable. It's eternal. It's a more holy union than a husband and wife have. Because a husband and wife or till death do us part, but then you part and we're not married in heaven. But you're joined to the Lord forever. And so you take the most holy union and you join that to the most casual sexual relationship, that of paid sex. And, and this, this just should not be, is what he says. And what he says to them is that the two will become one flesh. And he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about the Christian at Corinth and the prostitute having sex. So what he's saying is it's not just a body, bodily issue, it is a joining of 
life. Sexual union does not just join bodies, but it's becoming one flesh. And the Corinthians didn't get this. They just thought it's a physical thing. And he's saying, no, it's not. It's, it's created. God created sex to express a one flesh union so that when a couple is married, they come together and that reflects this, this lifelong commitment that all they have is being joined. Not just their they're not just joining their genitals together. That's, it's, no, all your life is joined. Your hopes, your dreams, your, who you are, your strengths, your weaknesses. I mean, let's go on. Your finances, your problems, your burdens, your joys, your relationship with the Lord. All of your life is joined together. And that's expressed in a union that is physical and is a spiritual joining into one flesh. And the Corinthians have no idea about that. See, the fact that sexual union has this mystical, spiritual... beyond It's not just like, like I said, eating ham sandwich, like they think the body is for food, food to the body. It's different than that. I believe even people who don't believe the Bible and don't believe what I'm reading right now, maybe you don't, people who don't believe this, I think they know that. Because there's something different when people come together and have sex together. There's something unique about that, and they can sense that. And even describe sex as a spiritual experience. Or even describe sexual climax as something that is the person they were with, and they may not hardly know them, or they may be dating them, they're not married to them, and there's something that is transcendent about that experience. Because it's not just a bodily experience, and people know that even if they are not Christians. And we know that for good or for bad. We know that for good or for bad, that once we have sex with someone we're not married to, it changes the relationship. It changes the relationship. There's something there. There's something there that if you run into that person later, it's not the same as with the person that was your golfing buddy. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Okay, we're, hey, remember we're on the bowling team together. Yeah. Yeah. That's different than we had sex together. And I'm not really trying to be funny, though. That did sound kind of strange. But I, I, that it's different because there's a, a one flesh, there's a union of personhood that took place in that act. Now, you're not married because you had sex to some, with someone you're not married to. That doesn't make you married. But it does create some kind of a bonding that happens there so that people who don't even believe what I'm saying can, ex- can agree with what I'm describing at this point. Because you shared more than your body. You became one flesh. And so he's, that's what he's telling them. That's very different. I mean, think about what he's telling them. You're united to Christ, so in a mysterious way, when you have sex with a prostitute, it's like you're joining Christ to a prostitute. That's what he's saying. And so verse 18, that's why he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee is what he says. Run. Go the other direction. The Bible says, turn and run the other direction. Because God doesn't want me to have any fun. Go back and listen to the last two weeks' messages. No, God wants you to have more fun than you can imagine or that you will have. You will never tap out your pleasure potential this side of heaven. So God's, God has uh, tremendous uh, pleasure for you. It's not because he's opposed to that. It's because... It's because it's, it's not how he designed sex to be experienced and used. He designed it to join two lives together. And when we go outside of his boundaries, then we, we, experience, uh, we experience what I'm describing here, what he's asking them. He's not saying, consider my argument, think about my rationale. He's saying, run! Flee! 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 One commentator on this passage said this, because sexual sins affect us so deeply within our personality, and because the sex drive is so powerful, Christians must take determined and strong action. In practice, that means putting a distance between ourselves and temptation. It's not a godly thing to put oneself in a situation where temptation may prove too strong. The right thing to do is run away. That's what he's saying. He doesn't say, put yourself in the temptation... And then grit your teeth and say, help me, Jesus. No, he says, run. Run, run, run. 
So we want to ask the right questions. We understand the nature of sex. And then he says this to them. We must be committed to the lordship of Jesus. And this is a message that's just not really in style, uh, certainly not outside of the church, but in, maybe not in some places even in the evangelical church. We don't hear about as much about this anymore. But it's submitted to the lordship of Christ. That's where he goes with this. He goes on to say, look, that the Spirit lives in you. Do you not know, verse 19, that the Holy Spirit lives within in you? And then he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So he says, because, ask the right question, what's right with this? Because of the nature of the event, it's a one flesh union. Don't do this with someone you're not married to. And he goes on to say, you don't even own your own body. I mean, is that not the most un-American thing possible? What do you mean? I'm totally free to do what? If you're a Christian, your body is submitted with all of you to Jesus. And if that wasn't explained when they gave the hymn of invitation and you just thought you were going to pray a prayer so you didn't have to go to hell and then you go live the rest of your life doing whatever you want, then at this point we need to inform you, you didn't, I'm not saying they didn't say it right because I don't know what they said, but I am saying you didn't understand it right. Because the invitation to follow Jesus is come and die. It's carry your cross. It's he is Lord and I am not. He's a gracious Lord. He's a benevolent Lord. He's a loving Lord. He's a perfect Father. He's a glorious Savior, but make no bone, he makes no bones about it. He is Lord. And so that's where he comes at the end of this. He's saying, hey, look, by the way, you don't even own your own body. He's kind of saying, that, who do you think you are that you can just go sleep with whoever you want as if you have the freedom to eat a ham sandwich? You know, that illustration It's just a bodily thing. I can do whatever I want. No, he's saying, no, you, you, don't, you don't own your body. By the way, you don't own, we don't own our money. We don't own our talents. We don't own our time. Being a Christian means he owns it all. And we are using it for his glory. That's where he goes with this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Please notice how this is tied to the gospel. Because it's, it's, it's beautiful that he does that. You were bought with a price. What he's saying is, the precious blood of Jesus was shed for our sins of sexual immorality. Jesus was perfectly pure. He never sinned, but on the cross, he was treated as if he had been immoral. That is, he took the penalty for our immorality, for our sexual immorality. He was beaten for our lusts. Why was Jesus beaten? Because I'm a lustful man. And God was dying for my sins. That, that's what he says here. You were bought with a price. What's the price? That's redemption. That's the blood of Jesus. He was scourged. He was scourged for our pornography viewing. He was nailed to a tree because we have intimately touched someone that we weren't married to. Because we've had sexual intercourse with someone we were not married to. That's why Jesus died. Bought with a price. God poured out His judgment on His Son for all of our premarital sexual activity. And for our deception in keeping it hidden. And acting like it never happened. That's why He died. You were bought with a price. So that we could be forgiven so that we could be washed clean, so that our record could be purged, so that our history could be erased before Him. Jesus never entertained a lustful thought, and yet He gave His life for our lustful sins. The pure substituted for the filthy, so that we can be declared pure. So that if we believe in Jesus, if we receive Him as our Savior and our Lord, if we are converted, then all of His righteousness is credited to us and all of our filth is put on Him, including the acts that they're doing right here. Sleeping with a temple prostitute or, and whatever we have done. So if you've never believed in Jesus, you can turn to Him even now and be forgiven all your sins. And the Bible makes clear that we've all sinned in this way. Jesus said that if you even look on someone with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery in your heart. So we've all done that. And we've all uh, given our minds over to fantasies, whether they were sexual uh, fantasies of someone we're not married to or romantic fantasies of someone that we're not married to or whatever it is. We've all done this. And many of us have acted physically upon those things. And yet in, in Christ, there is forgiveness. You can have 
All of your sins washed away. Pete read that verse to us. I love that verse he read. It goes through that list. Some of them are sexual sins. Some of them there were other sins. But he says, and such were some of you. You've been washed. We can have our sins washed. We can, we can have our shame taken away. We, we, can, we can have it all forgiven. That's good news. And with that, because you were bought with a price, you're not your own. So it does cut both ways. You, you receive absolute forgiveness, which is glorious, and you absolutely give yourself to him, which is glorious as well, because he's perfect and wonderful and loving. But it is an exchange. It's not, I just get my forgiveness and then it doesn't matter what I do. No, it, it does matter. He calls us to walk with him. So being a Christian in the most practical sense means you've not only given your heart to Jesus, but you've given your body to Jesus. And that could go a lot of different directions, how we take care of our body. We can talk about all kinds of things. But we're talking about sex tonight, illicit sex. So that means I didn't just invite Jesus into my heart. I also invited him to be master and Lord over my sexual life. Thought life, fantasy life, speech life, and practical life. That's what it means. And I think some of the issues around sexual sin... It's just a very basic question. Is Jesus my Lord? N- n- when, when I'm saying what's right and what's wrong. Now, if I say I believe sexual sin, sexual, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and I'm struggling, and I'm falling, and I'm confessing, and I'm getting help, and I'm growing, okay, that is life. Okay, that is the Christian life. We stumble, we fall, and we repent, and, God, and then we stumble less and less as we grow and mature. So we grow and mature, and so that's the Christian life. But the person who just says, I can have sex with whomever I want. I mean, I love them. I'm not just going to have sex with a stranger. I'm not married to them, but I love them. So I love this person that I'm not married to and I have sex, and I love Jesus, and I see no problem with that. Then the Bible would say you should see a big problem with that because it's questionable whether you've ever met Jesus as master of your life because he says to you tonight, you are not your own. You were bought with his blood, so glorify God in your body. The Lordship of Christ is a basic biblical message, and we want to see that brought back in all of our lives. And this touches every area of life. We just happen to be in a series on sex. But it touches every area of our lives that he is Lord. And we live in a cultural climate where the challenge of lordship is, uh, even in the church at times, is just a challenge. But the challenge of lordship means keep your hands to yourself as a single adult. That you don't put your hands on private areas of someone you're not married to. That is just basic lordship. Your pants always remain on. That is basic lordship. Your thoughts reigned in to the Lord. That's what the Lord calls us to. It's being as practical as I can be about this. Not what the Lord would understand and, you know, this and that and the other. Uh, But the Lord just calls us to this. He is Lord. So a couple points of application in... We'll have ice cream Sundays. <laughs> Preaching the lordship of Jesus. And, oh, okay, the caramel's on the left, hot fudge's on the right. That just is a little disorienting. But um, first thing is this. The battle is, I want to say this. I'm, I'm saying that this is serious before the Lord. And I also want to say, and every married person in the room, we need to hear this. And we need to embrace this. It is very difficult for everybody to walk in purity of thought and action. It is very difficult for many single adults and we need to get our heads around that, and we need to commit ourselves to serving and coming alongside however we can. I love this quote from Martin Luther, the uh, reformer. He said, Some might say waiting for marriage is unbearable and aggravating. They're right, is what Luther said. It's very similar to other difficulties requiring patience that believers must face, such as fasting, imprisonment, cold, and that means no clothing exposed to the cold, sickness and persecution. Lust is a serious burden. You must resist it and fight against it, but after you have overcome it through prayer, lust will have caused you to pray more and grow in faith. Well, we'll never totally overcome it, but we can make significant strides. But I just read that, and it kind of, it kind of hit me. Here's a guy who wasn't married for a long time and wrestled with lust. But he's saying, tell people to wait until their marriage, that's, they're married to have sex, that's unbearable, that's aggravating. You're right. It's up there with sickness and imprisonment 
and naked outside in the cold without clothing. That's the battle for some people. So he's not saying, this is easy. Come on. Don't you love Jesus? Just don't think that. Don't think about that. What are... No, he's saying this is very, very difficult. And I think we need to realize, not for everybody, it's not for everybody equally difficult, but it is for some. So we want to remove the shock factor from the idea that someone's struggling with sexual temptation or sexual sin uh, and say, like, oh, man, how could you? Well, I, man, I haven't had a lustful thought in, I don't know, a decade or two? I can't remember. No, that is not who we are around here. That person does not exist in here. That person's in heaven. The person who hasn't lusted in 10 years died 10 years ago, okay? (laughs) And I want to say this too, there's not victory just by getting married. If you're single, the victory, the finish line is heaven, not the altar. That's the finish line. You'll stop lusting when you see Jesus face to face. But, and it's not the answer, it's not the answer. It's difficult. But here's number two. Grace is greater. Grace is greater than, than the difficulty. That's what he says. He says, as you pray and trust the Lord and fight this by the power of the word, by the power, I'm going to talk about in a minute, of help from others. But he basically says that there is, there is a developing faith that we have in the, in the Lord in this. In a great book called Sex and Money, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies by Paul Tripp. Just Sex and Money by Paul Tripp, if you want to Google it, or Amazon it, or whatever. He said, so does this leave me hopeless, that it's difficult? No. God, who knows how deep my struggle is, has gifted me with the lavish provisions of his powerful rescuing and transforming grace. Where does purity start? It starts by confessing your profound need and that you are unable to change what needs to be changed. Sexual purity doesn't begin with setting up a regimen for behavioral change. It begins with mourning the condition of your heart. And when you do, you can rest assured you will be greeted by the powerful grace of your Savior who has promised that he will never turn his back when you come to him with a broken and contrite heart. It doesn't start with a no-sex plan for the next year or something like that. It doesn't start with that. There can be tangible means that can be very helpful for us of accountability and help. There can be a number of things that can be helpful. But it doesn't start there. It starts with mourning and grieving my sin and my inability to change myself. And when we do that, that's when we're prepared to receive grace because the Lord gives grace to the humble. And that also means drawing someone in to help us. And so the third idea would be pursue community. So uh, we want to, ultimately, the battle's difficult, grace is greater than the battle, and we want to pursue uh, community together. Single adults, in particular, uh, you need single and married friends. Marrieds, we need to befriend singles that we can come alongside and support them as they are walking and uh, seeking to walk in purity. Because here's something that's important, and I don't know that we've done great at this as a church. Uh, and I'll, I'll take responsibility because I don't know that I've personally done great at this. So let me just say me and as a church. Uh, sex before marriage is disallowed for singles. Intimate relationships are not disallowed but encouraged. Deep fellowship, close friendship, someone who I, knows me that I'm walking with as a single person, that's encouraged. So it's not, you can't have any friendships of someone you're having sex with when you're not married, but there's plenty of closeness and support beyond the sexual relationship. So we, as a church, want to help those who are single, and we want to live together in this because marriage are struggling as well. We want to struggle together and grow together and celebrate God's victories together. That's one reason we have our community groups have men and women and uh, male, uh, I'm sorry, and uh, single and married together. Well, now, we might have some singles community groups in the future. We're not philosophically opposed to that. Like, that's, you know, that disobeys the Bible. I don't believe that. I think there, there's a place for them, and they could be helpful in some situations even. But we've just had integrated groups, marrieds and singles, together. And this is one of the reasons uh, so that there can be these kinds of friendship. Um, pursue community. Pursue help. Find someone that you can talk to about this. And don't make sex your God. Can I say something else to single, young people and single adults as well, is that not only is marriage not the finish line, marriage is not the answer. Fulfilling your sexual urge is a very bad God. Let me let you on a little secret. 
being married will not take away your lust and it will not take you, transport you to heaven. Why do you think I preached two weeks on this lofty view of sexuality within marriage, challenging everyone in the church to pursue that? It wasn't because we all got that, okay? It wasn't because of that. It's because we got a lot of folks that have passionless marriages, struggling marriages, drifting marriages, sex lives that are perfunctory uh, and obligatory in some cases and not Song of Solomon-esque, okay? I, I preach that to give us a lofty view and help us. If it, it, it wasn't because everybody said, all my problems are answered. I got married and I'm in sexual heaven 24-7 now for what, 50 years? No. <laughs> No, we got a bunch of humans here. And so, so the, you go back and listen to those messages. The reason I preach that way is because we don't all have that. And so you ain't going to have it either when you get married. It's not going to be perfect that every, there's no problems. Don't make sex your God like that's the answer. Don't make sex your God. Make Jesus your God, whether you're single or whether you are married. And invest your life in the kingdom. We, i got to be done. We don't have time to go into the next chapter. But you know what Paul's going to say in the next chapter? He's going to say, hey, I don't have a command from Jesus. I don't have a red letter on this. But my personal preference is you're better off single, is what Paul says. Because married people are concerned about all the stuff of life. we got to get, you know, we, we got to get everybody synced in our calendars. we got to take care of everybody. we got to go to soccer practice and do math home. All that kind of stuff. He says they are distracted by so much stuff. And if you're single, he says, you can be less distracted. You've got a job and a life. But you can be less distracted and focus on the kingdom. And that's why I'd rather have that, is what he says. That's what he says. So use your single years to invest yourself in the kingdom in serving, building relationships, reaching the lost, giving your life away, serving your master, rather than making sex or the dream and fantasy of sex your and romance and relationship, rather than making that your God and fritter your life away, hoping for that and, and angling for that and working for that and missing what God has for you in these years. That's a whole other sermon that we don't have time for. If you have failed, let me remind you of, and we all have, but if you failed physically, sexually, let me remind you of this quote, which I read at the beginning of this whole series by Christopher Ashe. The gospel is not for the sexually upright, but for the sexually fallen. Jesus didn't come to call healthy people, but to call the sick. He came to heal the sick. He came for sinners like you and like me. And just like he said to the woman caught in adultery, he did not condemn her. And he said, go and sin no more. That's his word to us tonight. If you're a Christian, he is our master. There's a lot to think about. Let's think about what the purpose of sex is. Let's repent where necessary. Let's ask for his grace. Let's invite the help of others. But if you are sexually in in sin or have been in sin, don't hide in the shadows and feed the sin. Come into the light. Confess the sin. Turn to him and you will find the Father's arms open to you, taking away your sin, wiping away your shame. And that's the community as well. We're sexual sinners here. So we we welcome the broken who are repenting and turning to follow Jesus, and we help them do that. We don't hold people's sins against them. We don't remind them of that. We don't categorize them. He says, such were some of you, but you've been washed clean. There's glorious new day for all sexual sinners. The gospel is for us to forgive us and to free us and to empower us for change. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.